Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, it was sort of a week of deja vu. Meme stocks are back in the headline as shares of the movie theater chain AMC got pumped to the moon. And the markets-oriented geopolitical tensions are making news again as the Biden administration looks to potentially expand the number of Chinese companies that are blacklisted for U.S. investors. What should we make of all these flashbacks? We'll get into it with the chief investment officer for a hedge fund firm that manages $9 billion. But first, Charlie Pellet, tell us who this week's mystery co-host is. This week's mystery co-host is Claire Ballantyne. Claire is a reporter for Bloomberg in New York focused on ETFs. She hails from the same town in Tennessee as Dolly Parton. She's licensed to marry couples in New York, and she has a collection of alpaca paraphernalia. Claire, there's a lot to unpack in that introduction, that Charlie Pellet introduction of you. Mainly, I wanted to get Charlie Pellet to say the words alpaca paraphernalia. I don't think I could say that five times fast, but you got to explain. How does one collect? What First of all, what the heck is alpaca paraphernalia and how, how does one become a collector? And what's the market like? Is it is it a hot market right now? What are prices going for in the alpaca paraphernalia market? You know, I've been doing it for so long that I can't even remember the origin of it. Um, it just sort of became a thing. And then what happens is is when you have a thing, people always get you stuff like that for your birthday or for Christmas. So even long past when this would have died out eventually, it just kept going because people kept giving me towels and mugs and rugs. And suddenly my apartment is overtaken by alpacas. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Is that, have you ever owned an actual alpaca or no? No, I want to. I want to get a standard poodle, the the dog, because I think it looks a bit like an alpaca, but you can walk it on the street without getting weird looks. <laughs> All right. I don't know if you'd get a weird look with an alpaca. I don't know. There's only one way to find out. We'll have to test that, that thesis sometime. But we should. I, I did one time see a guy in the East Village walking um, a pig. So anything in New York goes. <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right. Well, anything goes on this show. And we're very lucky this week to have a, a really uh, interesting guest, uh, someone I've read a lot about over the years. Uh, he is the chief investment officer at UBS O'Connor, which is the hedge fund division at UBS Asset Management. His name is Kevin Russell. Kevin, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Uh, great to be here. Now, Kevin, let's start with this whole uh, revenge of the meme stocks that we're seeing in the market again. AMC particularly just going doubling on one session during the week. I mean, for for a hedge fund guy like yourself with a lot of assets to, to sort of put to work, this seem, these type of things seem like kryptonite to me, especially obviously on the short side. I mean, we've, we've heard a lot of widowmaker trades on the short side. <laughs> 
But I'm wondering for you, you know, are there opportunities here for the, I mean, obviously with the volatility and these eye-popping moves we've seen, it's hard to ignore for a guy like you. I'm just wondering if, if there are opportunities in this space. Is there any way for, for you to put money to work uh, in, in this type of environment? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I try we try to be, uh, about as far from these types of situations in the market <laughs> as we possibly can. I, I talked to one of our PMs this morning and I said, I'd like to be roughly a million miles away from this. And he's like, well, you realize we're probably like 999,000 miles away because there's correlations with these stocks and other stocks that we're involved in. So, so I kind of, um, I kind of, uh, acknowledge that, but you know, to me, anytime, you have uh, stock price moves that are divorced from economic reality or corporate finance changes. That's like a flashing warning side uh, warning sign to us to really uh, be cautious around it. And you know, I don't know if you followed some of the stats on AMC. I, I'm drawn to it, not dissimilar to rubbernecking an accident on the freeway. Um, but the numbers I saw were, were were just amazing. You know, we had more AMC volume on Wednesday than we had in Tesla, Nvidia, Apple, and Amazon. Combined uh, on one day, we had more AMC options trading than we had this little index called the S and P five hundred uh, index options trading. So you know the volume is uh, is alarming. And, and listen, I think there's this temptation to just completely dismiss this type of activity as irrational and illogical and a casino or a mem stock. And I don't think that's true at all. You know, I, uh, you know, to me, you really have to pay close attention to some of these phenomenons. And for, for a long time, you know, we analyze companies, we analyze fundamental uh, changes at companies, we analyze what's going on in the, econ- in the economy, but we're, we're, we're honest and we're saying, you know, sometimes price performance, securities performance is a function of investor psychology and position and positioning. And, you know, when you have a situation like this, you know, you really cannot take an aggressive stand one way or another. You can't dismiss, uh, you know, the stock price moves one way or another. You just have to be cautious and realize this has become a purely technical event. There's a whole bunch of investors here with different perspectives and psychologies. There's investors who are getting free popcorn at AMC theaters, (laughs) by the way. Um, That's a motivation. I always wondered if that's uh, subject to the dividend tax. I don't know. You got to <laughs> yeah. give 15% of your popcorn back to the government, maybe. Probably is probably a slight markup at the, <laughs> uh, at the counter. I agree with you. Well, and then while this is all happening, I mean, are there any opportunities that, that you see for you all? Or are there opportunities that maybe um, are getting overlooked because everyone is so focused on, you know, watching the meme stocks go yeah. up and down. Yeah. So, so that's one of the, that, that's my 999,000 mile analogy because, you know, when stocks, whether it's an, an AMC or a bed, bath and beyond go up, um, we see things that go up in sympathy with that. Um, for, so for example, if people think that AMC and bed, bath and beyond are doing well, they get excited about mall owners or strip mall operators. And the reality is the dynamics of people going to malls and going to you know strip centers is not changing. It's not changing based on overnight price action in Bed Bath & Beyond or AMC. So we do see some of the stocks that are related 
um, react. And that's where we tend to look for opportunities to take advantage of the dislocation. So, you know, one of our core disciplines, and, and, and this has been, you know, for as long as I've been in the business, you have to be very mindful of how big the short base is in any stock. Uh, I always tell people stocks are log normally distributed, which is you invest $100 uh, and you can lose $100, but you can make 10x or 20x your, you know, your money. And, and subsequently, you have to be very mindful of the size and nature of your short positions. Um, and, and, and so we're, we're always on top of that, but we're looking for things that are one or two step removed from this, these stories. Take advantage of those dislocations. Yeah, it always amazes me to, you know, if some stocks say 50% short interest, uh, who's the one going in to turn it into 51 or 52%? That, that just seems like playing with fire to me. You know what? I, I got to tell you, uh, I, 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 I totally agree with that. And listen, I think I, I learned this literally about two weeks into my job when I started <laughs> I 28 bet. years ago, which is don't short too much uh, of anything because it can be very technical. And listen, I think it's just a matter of, um, of, uh, of hubris in a lot of cases. People are like, well, listen, um, you know, the valuation on these companies doesn't make sense. So I can be comfortable carrying a huge short. And, you know, when you have something that can be so technical, the valuation just doesn't matter. Um, and so we're always cautious with that. We, we, we watch, uh, short interest ratios, call us old fashioned. We look at the short base relative to daily volume. We look at the short base relative to the free float. And if it gets above these, you know, certain, certain metrics, we just try to avoid them. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Uh, Kevin, to move on to, to something I know you guys uh, were involved with, uh, at least er earlier in the year, you were uh, very bullish on China. I think one of the funds had was something like 18, 20 percent exposure to, to China. Um, I'm wondering, you know, do the sort of the, the sort of geopolitical sword rattling, the, the, the Biden blacklist um, possibly being expanded to, to not just military uh, linked firms? Um what do you make of all that? Is it kind of is it kind of just that? Is it a bit of saber rattling? Do, do you see any real risk there of, of sort of a, a worsening relationship with China and, and an outright ban of, of more stocks uh, for U.S. investors in China? Yeah. So, uh, listen, I, I think big picture, uh, there's a more constructive dialogue between the U.S. and China happening happening now than under the prior administration. 
And even though there's potentially a broader list of, of stocks that are going to be banned, there's potentially a tightening of existing bans and limiting bans to some of the specific subsidiaries. So, I, you know, big picture, I think relations uh, between the two countries from a trade and cooperation perspective are going to be improving. Um, but you know, to the extent that that there are these bans, you know, I, I think this. I think they create opportunity more than risk. You know, I think if you're sitting here, yeah, you're sitting in the U.S. You're sitting in Western Europe. You unfortunately tend to think about this from a European or U.S. perspective, like. You know, the U.S. government is going to discipline, you know, the Chinese. But the reality is uh, there's always a corollary, a Chinese perspective on these stories that creates, you know, an equally investable theme. And I'll, and I'll just give you an example. So, you know, under the Trump administration, there was this real aggressive uh, pressure on reducing higher end semiconductor uh, equipment materials and, and telecom equipment and stocks to, to, to the Chinese. Um, so what the Chinese government did is react uber rationally and said, OK, I get this. If there's some risk that I'm not going to be able to buy high quality intellectual property from the U.S., I'm going to build my own technology supply chain. And so while most people sat there in 2020 and said, wow, this is this uncertainty about U.S.-China trade and tech supply chain makes me nervous, some of the best performing stocks in the world in 2020 were some of the domestically focused Chinese small and mid-cap technology and semiconductor stocks. So we always tell our investors, like, you know, don't use your, um, don't look at everything from your U.S. lens uh, you know, put on your, you know, your China hat and interpret what this local corollary is going to be because it's going to create an investable theme on the other side. And how do you go about gauging that or trying to make predictions on what international relations are going to be like? I mean, you know, talking about how this administration seems like it will be um, have a more amenable relationship with China. How, how do you go about sort of gauging that and then also the time horizon for that? Well, I mean, so, so there's a, a bunch of um, consultants, there's uh, uh, political uh, research firms, there's uh, analysts, there's policy analysts. You know, we talk to um, government officials as well. We can get, a, you know, I think a really good sense for, for the direction of travel. And, and, and in particular, on, um, on, uh, on China, we're leveraging our local presence. I mean, you know, this is why I would, I would never think about investing you know, in Asia, from sitting here in the U.S., we have a team that's local, that's uh, very plugged into what's going on in the regulatory landscape and economic policy landscape in China. The team's in, in Hong Kong and Singapore. There's resources in Shanghai as well. Um, and you, you, you can get a really good sense for what, um, what the policy agenda um, there is and, and, and likely the, you know, the changes that are coming. So it's something you can, you can get a pretty good handle on. You know, Kevin, for years now, I guess the one of the main bullish themes for China has been sort of this transition from a, a manufacturing dominated economy to potentially a more consumer dominated economy. Um, and some of the inter interesting developments in China uh, this year and late last year has been um, sort of a, a an attempt to to tame the credit markets in China, the, you know, corporate credits, especially and and prevent them from getting out of hand, getting a little too frothy. So I'm, I'm just curious, you know, with those two things in mind and whatever else you're looking at in China, just what are sort of the main themes, the main kind of sectors? And is it 
Is it equities and credit or a little both? What, what kind of things are really uh, drawing you into China? Yeah, so one of the things that were the were, makes us the most excited about China that that I'm you know puzzled because it it feels like not enough people are talking about is the aggressive market reform agenda passed by China late last year. That's you know the QFI and our QFI reform. And you know as you as you well know historically when we want to access the onshore market in China we have to trade via the Connect system. Uh, in Hong Kong, but what the QFI and our QFI reforms are going to allow us allow us to do is to is to trade directly in the onshore market with Chinese banks and broker dealers. Additionally, there's going to be a borrow market that develops in the onshore market that's going to allow us to short stocks in the onshore market. So, you know, against all this anxiety about China, about a centrally planned economy, about trade friction, people are missing what we see as a watershed event of the market opening up and becoming more efficient and more accessible to international investors. And all of the same principles that we use to invest on a long, short basis fundamentally uh, in the U.S. or in Europe, well, they hold also in uh, in China. It's just a lot less competitive. You know, Chinese uh, in the Chinese market, less than about which is about ten percent of the fu- of the market cap is is owned by hedge funds. The onshore market, approximately eighty percent of the volume in the onshore market is retail investors. Uh, and so we just have a market that's, you know, we think going to become a lot more efficient, a lot more conducive to relative value investing in a market where we don't think enough institutional investors are paying close enough attention. So for us, we, we like to think of it as China transitioning from a beta story to an alpha story where it's going to matter the subsectors you pick. It's going to matter the management teams, the products, the sectors that you pick, it's not just going to be China as a beta trade anymore. And that just, you know, for us is super rational and it's a really healthy growth in that market. From, for, you know, from a subsector perspective, you know, where we, um, you know, there's a very clearly a tightening of the regulatory environment happening in China. There's some tightening of regulation on fintechs, there's a tightening of regulation on some of the uh, internet and larger media companies. Now, that's having a, a, a pretty meaningful impact. That's creating, I think, big opportunities in the financial services sector. Uh, you know, we see big opportunities in more of the cyclical uh, industrial and machinery and material spaces uh, in China. So it's it's kind of a rotation, not dissimilar to the rotation we're seeing everywhere else in the world where you're going from you know, from tech and growth to more value and cyclical sectors, but that's happening against a backdrop of a market getting more efficient. You know, for us, we see China as the biggest alpha opportunity in the world over the next really five to seven years. And it's mostly to do with the fact that the markets are becoming more efficient. Is there anything that's um, that surprised you in terms of your stance on China and um, sort of these these positions that either um, this year or even more recently that you maybe didn't expect? Yeah, well, I mean, it just, uh, you know, so the feedback that we that we get, we talk to investors um, a lot. We talk to, um, you know, obviously our counterparties a lot. Yeah, I think people's eyes are just off the ball here. I mean, I, again, I think they they just have it in their 
head that, you know, China is highly, you know, highly regulated, closed economy. There's a very standoff dynamic between uh, between the U.S. and China from a political or trade perspective. But again, it's it's not what's happening in reality. The market is undergoing this massive opening up and it's. To, to me, people are just kind of ignoring it and they're they're getting caught in these headlines and they're not they're not paying close enough attention to the reality of what's happening. And, I, and I'll I'll um, I'll give you a stat that I think is pretty interesting right now. We estimate that you can short approximately 50 billion dollars in aggregate of Chinese equities uh, right now through current inventory and the connect mechanism. If this onshore borrow market develops as we expect, that number is going to go up by a factor of, you know, at least 5x, maybe 10x. And what that means is, you know, China's already outstanding from a liquidity perspective. If you get if you get that borrow market developing and it gets more efficient, it is just going to be a terrific place for dynamic relative value investors to deploy capital. And 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 we think we're there sooner than most, but I I, I think we're going to see a lot of people go in that direction. Yeah, it's interesting. You, I often read about these sort of valuation discrepancies caused by the onshore connect. You know, there's there's a a, a lot of money flowing in south to north, and you know it, it causes you know stocks to be trading at wildly different valuations depending on you know where they're listed. I imagine that's a uh, a pretty fleeting opportunity, but a big one when it happens uh, for for like you said, the people that are there there in place ready to take advantage of it. Yeah, listen, it's a it's a huge opportunity, uh, you know, and, and, and I think you have to, again, resist the temptation of a lot of professional investors, you know, dismiss retail flows at your own peril. You know, um, yeah. we say and it's not dissimilar to the, you know, to the mem stocks, you know, the, the Chinese retail investors have a heavy momentum quality um, and you will see things overreact both directions. You need to follow it, you need to respect it, but it also creates a lot of dislocation and relative value investment opportunities for, for funds like us to uh, to capitalize on. Yeah, I have a, a colleague, uh, Yi Shi at Bloomberg, who you know follows the, the Chinese social media very carefully. He said, one of the jokes uh, going around when all GameStop and now AMC, when all that was going on is that, well... Here, America, you've turned into the Chinese market now with this heavy <laughs> dominance of retail participation. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting, I think, when all of a sudden there is an opportunity to borrow a lot more of these names. Um, boy, I don't know. I don't know if Reddit is uh, published in Mandarin yet or not, but it, 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 <laughs> that could be an interesting dynamic. There's undoubtedly a, uh, I, you know, yeah, I'm, uh, Weibo or something. Is, yeah. yeah, exactly. There's un- undoubtedly that, that sort of same chat room mentality. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. I guess just, just sort of relating to that. I mean, do you think that there are any, any lessons from that that, you know, can be applicable to the U.S. market just in terms of the, of the retail presence, what you're seeing either in the two markets or um, any similarities or differences? You know, I mean, I, maybe you can call me a little bit uh, old-fashioned, but you know, we believe in being uh, in being a little bit paranoid, <laughs> paranoid about you know uh, making sure we know what we know, paranoid about what we don't know. Um, and anytime you see stock prices or moves that look irrational, um, you know, that's just something to draw your interest in. You know, you've got to do a lot more work again on the, on the technicals, on the positioning, on the expectation to, before you can become, you know, be prepared to come in and fade some of these moves. And listen, if I had one recommendation, you know, for people, it's to not dismiss these flows, uh, to understand what that's telling you about market participants, what's that telling you about psychology, and then just be humble about it and say like, okay, when I'm on the other side of these trades or I want to take the other side of these trades because I don't think, you know, AMC uh, is worth its current market cap, well, guess what? The people buying AMC have no opinion on its market cap. So my assessment of coming in and looking at the value of AMC on a market cap relative to earnings power, which you know, maybe is how we think it should be valued, it's just not relevant. So you just have to have this inherent paranoia or skepticism that there could be something else driving stock price performance and, and you should be cautious about it. Yeah, Kevin, I was reading about, uh, I guess it was the first half of last year. Uh, you guys had a really strong run uh, then during the pandemic. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was um, it sounds like you, you did some pair trades uh, where you would short the stocks of some of the uh, companies getting really hit hard by the pandemic, but then go long the credit uh, of the same companies. Um, and I, to me, I, I mean, it makes Total. So I don't think I granted. I don't think I ever would have thought of that at the time. But it makes total sense, uh, given the dynamics at play at the time with the Fed basically saying it was going to backstop the credit markets. Um, another big story this week, obviously, is is the Fed saying it's going to sort of unwind uh, it, its credit holdings. Um, and it was really, I, I think, more of a psychological uh, effect on the credit markets than a, a sort of dollar for dollar uh, impact from from what the Fed did. So I'm just curious, you know, how you're thinking is was that was that sort of a a a fleeting once in a lifetime opportunity to do that type of thing amid the pandemic or, you know, are credit markets such that you would you would still think of doing that type of trade uh, in this environment a year later? Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, the, the opportunity in March and April of 2020 in the U.S. credit, mar credit markets was historic. Uh, you know, really the only good analogy, I think, is is the global financial crisis. Um, and in particular, when the Fed came out and went the extra mile to say they were going to support the high yield market, we were staring at each other like, can you believe they just said that? Did they really just say that? You know, it does say high tape? yield bonds, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and there was a time where the market 
didn't react right away. And we were staring at each other like, this is a really unbelievable, historic and special opportunity. And And the most unique thing about it is that, you know, normally you see that sort of news and then the market squeezes squeezes up and you have a hard time buying anything and you're like, okay, well, I, I just missed it. But what happened for really the entirety of the summer, because the economic conditions associated with COVID were so severe, you actually had a bunch of companies who had to come out and issue high yield investment grade or convertible debt. So not only did you have this dynamic where the Fed was supporting the credit markets. And listen, I, I, was, I always tell people like, if you had a a wish list of things you wanted for the holidays and you asked for the Fed, they gave you all those things and they're like, oh, by the way, we got a new car for you out in the driveway as well. <laughs> so, so you had everything you could possibly have wanted, but then there was a ton of issuance. So we could go out and buy a lot of high yield investment grade and convertible bonds. So not only were we able to benefit from the from the Fed policy action, but we were able to benefit from corporates issuing in what retrospect was incredibly cheap paper to shore up their liquidity to operate over the COVID crisis. So, I mean, I'm trying to imagine how that particular fact pattern repeats. And uh, and I really (laughs) can't. Knock on wood. Um, Let's hope. uh, (laughs) Let's hope not. Yeah, no, I feel a little. I feel a little bad because it was. It was without a doubt probably the most compelling investing environment that that I've seen. And uh, you know, really, it's it. It really only compares to the global financial crisis in terms of the opportunity. So it's it's hard to imagine. You know, it's it's ever like that again. But but listen, there are, and this is part of the reason why investors like our, ourselves, who we invest in equity markets and credit credit markets globally all day every day, uh, not everybody does that. And so you can have situations where people are you know, looking laser focused on the equity market or the credit market and they're missing the dynamic. Um, and, you know, probably one of the the, you know, we had some some credit positions that that really benefited from from some of this retail participation, because as these company stocks rallied, they were able to issue equity. They're able to shore up their balance sheets, improve their credit. So it's just a, a really a, a, a perfect dynamic to be long credit and short equity. Yeah. And I wonder, you got to sort of be in the right position to take advantage of it. You know, if you're uh, if you're getting margin calls and you're getting uh, outflows and all that, it, it's some opportunities for a lot of people just had to had to skip them, I imagine. Yeah, you just I mean, our philosophy is we just uh, we're never that confident. Uh, so we're just never going to go into a situation over levered. Um, we're always going to keep dry powder. Um, and we're always going to, we always manage our, our betas very tightly. Again, we're a relative value fund. So, you know, when there's a market drawdown, we're going to be massively outperforming, you know, beta indices and generally our investors are going to focus on their their beta investments, so they're they're confident that we're going to be able to ride through those sort of events and capitalize on some of those dislocations. So you know when you have a long term stable capital base and you're prudent from maintaining some excess margin, you can come in and take advantage of those opportunities. So we were fortunate to do that. Well, and then just seeing what happened last year, I mean, you know, like we said, knock on wood. We're not going to have a repeat of that. But were there any sort of lessons from that trade or from kind of being able to identify that early that you're going to take into the future or even the next time there is any market turmoil or anything like that? 
Yeah. So, so I think that one of the enduring lessons for, for us is that, um, you know, let's get our capital to the spots that are the most attractive. You know, I think there's one of the, you know, I'll call it a mistake, but maybe that's an overstatement. You know, people say, Hey, I need to have some invested in this area of the market and that area of the market. And, and the reality is there were like, you know, yeah, the, the credit markets in the U S were an enormous opportunity, but that was just, you know, frankly, one of three enormous opportunities in 2020. Um, you know, most people don't realize, don't remember or, or, or forgetting the fact that, well, China was approximately three to four months ahead of every other economy in the world in terms of getting the COVID, um, you know, virus, but emerging from it. And so in our view, one of the biggest opportunities that we were able to capitalize on was moving into equities in China in the summer of 2020. We were in, remember the summer of 2020 here, we were in the throes of anxiety in Western Europe and the US, but we were seeing very clear indications based on travel and commerce that the Chinese economy is starting to accelerate out of that. So we were able to rotate and really gross up our exposures in China and take care of that. And then, and then finally, you know, we had that uh, election back in, in November uh, and, you know, maybe it seems obvious now, but you know, the democratic agenda by administration, democratic Congress was going to lead to two things, uh, stimulus and um, environmentally oriented policy. Right. And so that, accelerated in our opinion a massive opportunity to rotate and move our capital into some of the cyclical sectors that had been ignored for really you know a long time i mean we, we'd spent almost 20 years when we thought about hey interest rates are low growth is low we're supposed to go buy you know high quality growth stocks and quality stocks and now it's the opposite in a lot of ways we're starting a new economic cycle you're supposed to own cyclical stocks you're supposed to own value stocks and it was a very clear and obvious rotation that people should have been doing pretty much right into and after the election. But people people lagged it. And that rotation, frankly, uh, continues to go on even even in the markets, uh, you know, here today and Thursday. You know, uh, Kevin, before we get into the crazy things, I think someone passed a law somewhere where every interview like this has to include a question about inflation in, in 2021. I don't know. <laughs> It's, it's mandatory. I think I get I get locked up if I don't if I don't touch on it. But what, one thing I noticed, um, you know, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people keep an eye on that city economic surprise index or there's there's other you know firms that have eco surprise index. City also has an inflation surprise index that unfortunately it only prices once a month at the end of the month. And I, I looked at it on the first day of June and noticed. May, I mean, we all knew inflation was hot in May and we all knew it was hotter than everyone expected, but that inflation surprise index jumped, it like doubled in May and it hit the highest level ever, which to me, I find interesting because the, the ripple effects of all the CPI and PC, whatever reports we saw in May, yeah, the market didn't freak out too much about it, um, which to me leads me to believe that kind of the consensus out there is to agree with the Fed that this is all transitory, whether it be base effects or or the supply bottlenecks we're seeing, and that we don't really have to worry about inflation. Um, I'm just curious what your take on it is. I mean, is, is there 
I don't know, a single digit chance that they're wrong, that we are looking at sort of a, a structurally high, higher inflation rate going forward because of all the all the stimulus. How are you thinking about it? Yeah. So, so I think one, one of the things that a lot of people, uh, you know, forget is, you know, we're getting this rush of economic activity after several years of really lower CapEx and investment on expectations that, you know, growth was going to be low uh, forever. And so, you know, whether it's it's um, it's industrial metals or oil and gas, there has been a massive, you know, underinvestment in CapEx really the past several years. And so now as the global economy starting to restart, uh, starting to restart, the commodity markets are just really tight. And, you know, the, the amount of, um, of, of price inflation happening just on the raw material side is, is massive. Um, and now there's a ton of, there's no shortage of resources in the world. Uh, there's just a shortage of resources that can get put into production right away. And so, uh, you know, we're definitely in the camp that we're going to see uh, a supply reaction. You're going to get a reaction out of out of OPEC. You're going to get a reaction on some of the metal and mining companies, and you're going to offset some of those short term price squeezes. But it's unclear to me whether that's happening in the in the second quarter, or third quarter, or fourth quarter. And so, I think there's a pretty significant probability. That there's an inflation surprise and that it's difficult for the market on a on a short term basis. That's over the sort of the three month horizon. But I think long, longer term, I think there's generally consensus that that there's going to be a supply response and offset some of these transitory pressures. So, you know, what we're seeing, though, is uh, and I agree with you, there's. You know, you have to talk about inflation every every discussion. Otherwise, uh, it, uh, it's a problem. You know, there's a there's a really I think a rational transition transition happening in the market right now, as investors are starting to distinguish between who is more tightly managing their cost of goods sold, their inventory requirements. And so we're seeing who has pricing power. We're seeing, you know, who's managing, you know, their cost infrastructure better. And the market is actually distinguishing companies and subsectors based on how they're managing the cost side of their equation. So I, I actually, to us, it looks like we've transitioned from, you know, if you were 10 out of 10 frenetic anxiety about uh, inflation in March, you're probably down to like a seven out of 10 now because people, you know, equity, once, once people are talking about it for a good rule of thumb, if you've been hearing people talk about it for two weeks, it's discounted. Um, and so for all of the hand wringing that's happened, if you guys are watching the 10 year, right, 10 years been at 160 for, I don't know, three weeks now, four weeks. So I think in, in, increasingly the, the the markets are, are are discounting these short-term inflationary pressures and and are more relaxed about it. There's still going to be some rotations and volatility, uh, but you know clearly it's it's the it's the negative event in the market. It's it's the black swan event. There's a there's an inflation surprise. It's the Fed is behind the curve. The ECB is behind the curve. And, you know, it ends up being counterproductive to economic activity in the back half of the year. That's that's a probability. We think it's pretty low, but that's clearly the the thing to worry about. You know, I, and I keep thinking, as you mentioned, that supply side response, I just can't help but wonder if that's going to overreact. And we're talking about transitory deflation next year. And, and who's prepared for that? <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Well, uh, hopefully I'll be able to come back and uh, and, 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 and uh 
and uh, and talk about that. I mean, listen, I think that there's again, there's no shortage of resources out there. It's just a function of, you know, really structurally lower CapEx for the past couple of years. They're corporate boardrooms around the world. They're seeing this. They're seeing the opportunity. They're looking for new supply projects. They're bringing supply online. And it's going to offset. It's just a question of whether it gets here soon enough for, for some people in the market. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. You know, Claire, as Kevin said, there's no shortage of supply of resources in the world. You know what? There's also not a shortage of crazy things, I believe. <laughs> I totally agree. Well supplied in that arena. So I want you to kick us off with the craziest thing you saw this week. So the craziest thing that I saw, um, we actually had a story out this morning. It was um, my colleague, Katie Greifeld, wrote it um, and she's fantastic. But it, of course, is about uh, AMC. And um, we saw that um, with AMC, um, it it recently had a regulatory filing um, that landed this morning, and it, it talked about its intention to um, sell more than 11 million shares. Um, but it had this acknowledgement in the language, um, and it, it it said that uh, the stock is at the mercy of, of the retail mania, um, with fundamentals playing little role in determining its valuation. Um, so just the fact that that made its way into an official regulatory uh, filing, I thought was was pretty crazy. Yeah. Proceeds from the sale will be deposited with Orville Redenbacher to pay for all that, that free popcorn, <laughs> presumably. It is. I, I, uh, I don't think we've had any of us have seen. I mean, I don't know. The bar for crazy things keeps getting raised higher and higher. This this one, though, is uh, is pretty good. I don't know. I don't want to knock on wood. People listening with headphones at home might get a pop in the ear, but knock on wood. We, we don't get any crazier than that. But uh, Kevin, how about you? You see anything crazy this week? Well, I mean, am I going to get in trouble if I kind of copy Claire on this one? Not at all. Um, not at all. No. Oh, so, so I, um, I saw something and it was AMC, but it was an AMC nuance that I think is interesting here. I, I, I came in after the long weekend stupor that we all were in on Tuesday morning and saw that AMC had issued stock to a single investor. Um, and Call me old fashioned. I'm used to companies issuing stock at a discount to last sale. <laughs> and I saw that they issued stock at a premium to last sale to a single investor, about a, I think it was about a, a, a four or 5% premium. Um, which, and then I saw the, the stock promptly rally um, massively uh, past that. And then that same investor came out in the afternoon and said he thought the stock was wildly overvalued. Yep, yep. So we had this weird dynamic where a company issues stock at a premium to a single investor. That investor obviously sells it in the market that day, presumably, and then and then tells people he thinks it's overvalued before it promptly doubles again the next day. Yeah, right. And <laughs> You know, I I, uh, I think I've seen companies issue stock at a premium uh, maybe once in my in my career, and it's just again one of those things where you know something's different is yes. happening. If someone can find the page in Graham and Dodd where this uh, this is all explained, I'd I'd love to see it. But well, and also I I believe that investor was a distressed debt investor, so 
in a way, a brilliant trade, kind of the opposite of, of your trade last year. You know, it's go long the stock so that they can, you know, bolster the credit. I, I, boy, I, I don't know. But I, such a risky thing because you really didn't know. I mean, who knows how the market would react to a secondary like that, I guess. But it all worked out in their favor. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, he obviously figured it out. He, it, it worked out well for, it worked out well for him. Yeah. Uh, so. Pretty good. Pretty good. Tip of the hat to, to that. Um, I, I, I'm copying too. mine. I guess we're all in the AMC. Uh, we're all in the theater together on this. I got to say, I did. I did go back to an AMC theater last weekend uh, and saw a movie. It's got it. They have the big cushy leather recliners and the, they bring you the, yes. the, the food. It's it's uh, I don't know. Maybe there's there is a good bull case to, to be made. But um, to me, the the promotions the Claire, you and I worked on this story a little bit together. The promotions going on of AMC are are borderlining on the absurd. You know, you, you're seeing people on the street corner holding poster boards saying, you know, buy AMC stock. You're, you're seeing. Someone tweeted a video of some pool party. I looked at some hotel. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. I saw that. I did see With that. These, these models in bikinis dancing around, w- waving you know, signs that say AMC to the moon. I can't wrap my head around this, Kevin. I don't know. I, I uh, it, It's all fun while it lasts, I guess. It seems like uh, sort of a game of musical chairs to some degree to see who's going to be left holding that bag <laughs> you know, by the end of this. There'll they'll be, they'll be a, it'll end very badly for people on the long and short side of there. Uh, like, so there's people are going to have issues with it for sure. Yeah. I, I presumably those models got paid for their day's work though. So they're, they're happy. It's uh, uh, so some, some stimulus into the economy from all this anyway, but uh, Claire Ballantyne, Kevin Russell, really great to catch up with both of you. I hope we can have you back uh, both of you back on this show someday, but I think that's all the time we have. Uh, thanks for having me guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Claire Ballantyne is at CFP underscore 18. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.